Lord, we are just grateful to be here this morning to open up the pages of this timeless book and let it speak to our hearts. I pray that we would be humble this morning in hearing what you have for us and even changing, Lord. Um, It's one thing to listen, it is another to change our behavior. And I pray that you would make us more like Jesus this morning, that we would look at the life of David and consider how we might apply those very same principles to our own life. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, I just finished reading a book within the last week or so that described the consequences of sin in terms of a nuclear blast. So I included a picture on the screen for you of what that might look like. Uh, I believe that's from like the post-World War II era when they were experimenting with uh, nuclear technology. And, And the author of the book was careful to say that when we think of like a nuclear blast, we think of that, the mushroom cloud, this huge impact. I read online somewhere that the uh, radius of one of these blasts can be something like four and a half miles wide. It's just catastrophic. And yet, perhaps the unseen danger of a nuclear bomb is what we call the fallout, in which there are these radioactive particles that remain in the atmosphere for months even years afterwards, wreaking havoc on the atomic level, on plants, animals, even humans, so much so that even years after the explosion of one of these bombs, people are still suffering the consequences from it because of the radioactive fallout. And the author of the book that I was reading was careful to say that sin is very much like this. There is that initial, like, wow factor, if you will, something catastrophic that takes place, and then the consequences of it are often much more subtle, and yet they can exist for a very long time and continue to wreak havoc on people. I I use this as an illustration this morning because last week in our Sunday school lesson, we looked at what might be that initial blast in the life of David when he commits that sin with Bathsheba, It was catastrophic. There were some things that immediately happened in the events following that that were just like this mushroom cloud going off. I mean, immediately, David tries covering his sin and he murders someone as a product of it. Bathsheba has that son and he's killed. He dies, this infant son. And we might think of that as the blast, but what we'll read about today in the following chapters would be the fallout the consequences for that initial sin that just transcend into the following years even of David's life. So turn with me to 2 Samuel 13 as we continue our story today. God actually outlined the long-term consequences for David. I'll throw it on the screen here for you. In 2 Samuel 12, God tells him that as a direct result of your sin, David, the sword shall never depart from your house, 
I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. In our passages today, we are going to see two of these three things fulfilled. There are immediate consequences for David's sin, and then there are some of these which take place long afterwards. So 2 Samuel 13, we're going to read a lengthy passage here, so bear with me, beginning in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong, and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And what we just read here is one of the more disturbing stories in the entirety of the scriptures. I I mean, to be honest, as I was reading this, my mind like flashed back to the end of the book of Judges when you just see human 
depravity and lawlessness on full display. Remember that condemnation at the end of the book of Judges, everyone doing right in their own eyes? Sure seems like what's happening here. And I think we pretty well understand what took place in the story. I'm not going to go into crazy detail describing what it was. I think you understood as I read it what happened. But I do want to make one significant observation for you this morning from this horrific passage of scripture. This is the second time that we have seen in this book a man so consumed by sexual passion that he will ignore obvious restrictions or hindrances to indulge himself. Who was the first man that did this? David, right? Remember, it was told him Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah, and he says, I don't care. Bring her to me. And here, Tamar is Amnon's sister. We would think there's a restriction, a natural barrier to you doing this, and he says, I don't really care. And I can't help but think about that phrase sometimes we'll throw out, like father, like son. And I'm not trying to absolve Amnon here. He was a grown man. He made decisions, certainly, that were wrong, and he should suffer the consequences for them. But if you really stop and think about it, Amnon did not have a great example in a father of what it would be to be self-controlled, of what it would be to say no to your flesh, to not indulge yourself in every opportunity that comes along. If Amnon looked at his dad, he would say, you did the same thing. And can I remind you this morning that it is important that we model godliness for the next generation. Be it our actual flesh and blood kids or otherwise, people watch us. We set an example through the way that we live that other people follow. Let me remind you of what Paul tells men and women in the book of Titus, particularly older men and women. I'll leave it up to your minds to figure out if you fall in that category if not. But Paul has instructions for older men and women. To the men, he says this. Excuse me, to the women, he says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Do you see the responsibility of older women here? Model what it is for younger women to be followers of Jesus. Paul has instructions for the men too. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I find it interesting that this teaching here is not older people just tell younger people what to do. It's demonstrate it. Do you see that? 
Paul tells the older men, be self-controlled. And in doing so, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Right? Younger people expect that older people not just tell them what to do, but practice what they preach, right? If you're not self-controlled, I don't want you to tell me to live a way that you're not willing to live yourself. There is a responsibility of the older generation to model, not just teach, godliness. Because people are watching us. And David, unfortunately, has set a very poor example for his son in what it is to be self-controlled. And his son follows down the same exact path and indulges himself in sexual sins. And much like his father, Amnon's sin had consequences. Look at verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. In one act of selfishness, Amnon ruined Tamar's life. Notice she's called here a desolate woman. Commentators offer a couple different opinions on that. The first I read said that Tamar would no longer be considered for any royal marriage contracts. So previously, where she might be used uh, to marry someone else within royalty, no more. Uh, One commentator even took it another step further and, and put it this way, that Tamar, in being called a desolate woman, would be unmarried and childless, which was, in essence, a living death for a Jewish woman. Here is, as the text says, this beautiful young woman who through no fault of her own has her life totally upended, ruined because of one selfish decision by her brother. And she becomes an exile of sorts, living with her other brother, Absalom, presumably until the day that she dies. And here's the point of the whole lesson. You're going to see this on the screen for the rest of today. Sin has serious consequences. And we may think that these consequences just affect us. And the consequences for Amnon's sin are going to affect him. Don't get me wrong. But perhaps even more scary or sobering is that our sin affects other people as well. And if you don't believe me, just look at this where Amnon's sin ruins Tamar's life. She lives in desolation for the rest of her life. The the consequences keep coming. Uh, Look at verse 21 again. When David heard all these things, 
He was very angry. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And that anger takes action in verse 23. Notice how long Absalom was harboring this hatred after two full years. Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons, and Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let his excuse me, until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And after two years of Absalom harboring this anger against Amnon, he devises this plan to kill his own brother, and he's successful. And need I remind you of the consequences of David's sin, that the sword would not depart from his house? We're seeing it. Here's the fallout for David's actions. The sword is going to dwell in David's house, and things quickly get chaotic. I won't read it for you, but in verse 30 to 33, David receives a false report that all of his sons have been killed. And he is just overcome. In one report, it seems as if all of his kids are dead. In actuality, it's just Amnon that is killed, and that is cleared up for David. But look at what happens when David gets the true report. Verse 34, Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. David's sorrow is palpable here. Amnon, his son, is dead. I don't think the words wept very bitterly quite do what is taking place here justice. From David's perspective, Amnon is his oldest, his most likely heir to the throne, and he's dead. And again, we just pause and consider the seriousness of sin. In a matter of just a couple of years after David committing this grievous sin with Bathsheba, he has an infant son, who dies. He has a daughter who is raped. 
he has a son who is killed by his brother. And that brother is on the run in another country. And we might look at David and his home life and say, that's a dysfunctional family. And yet we couldn't pin that on substance abuse or neglect or mental illness. David here can only look in the mirror and say what? The events of the last couple years have happened because of me. These are the consequences for David's sin. This is horrific. We would not wish this on any family. And David is experiencing this. The the last verse in this chapter indicates that eventually, verse 39, that the king's heart goes out to Absalom. He eventually came to grips with Amnon's death. But he doesn't take action on that desire. We're going to read in just a minute here that perhaps David doesn't seek reconciliation with Absalom because Absalom's a murderer and should be brought to justice. And David doesn't know how to navigate a situation in which his own son needs to be brought to justice by him. And so Absalom lives perpetually in this other country. David doesn't know what to do with this situation here. So someone else takes it upon themselves to bring Absalom home. Look at chapter 14. Verse 1, now Joab, oh boy, there he is, the son of Zariah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put words into her mouth. So it turns out Joab is behind this attempt to bring Absalom back home. Anytime I see Joab, he makes me nervous. Uh, We've observed already in 2 Samuel, he's a loose cannon. Joab does whatever he wants. David has an alliance with Abner, this competing general. Joab's like, I'll kill him. Uh, David sends a message to Joab, kill Uriah. Joab's like, okay. So Joab has this plan to bring back Absalom. And he, he... makes use of what we would call an actress, someone who's going to come to David with a hypothetical story and, and hopefully make a parallel between her life and David's. Let's look at her story here, verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to him and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Do you see how this lady's story mirrors David's present circumstances? She comes to David and says, I have two sons. One killed another son. And now my clan, my people, my tribe, in order to execute justice on my living son, want to kill him too. And she's like, but if they do that, my husband's name is going to be snuffed out. I won't have an heir. 
David, help me. What do I do here? Her circumstances match David's very closely. And so David gives his answer in verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. Seems like he wants some time to think about it. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. And she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son shall not be destroyed. Here's David's answer. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And David here decides to spare the life of this hypothetically remaining son, even though by strict letter of the law, this son should have been put to death. Justice should have been enacted in this situation. Commentators think that maybe David had some sort of legal precedent for this. Can you think of another set of brothers in which one killed the other, and yet the murderer was allowed to live? Cain and Abel. Yeah. So maybe that's what David was thinking about. We don't quite know what's going on here. David actually is a murderer himself and finds that his own life is spared. So there is some precedent for this type of decision-making. But in making this merciful judgment that he will let this widow's son live... The woman turns the tables on David. Look at verse 12. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. Notice how this lady is perpetuating this deception here, as if this really did happen to her. Verse 16, For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. This is the second time in as many weeks that someone has come to David with a story And in the process of David casting judgment in this story, he condemns himself. Right, Nathan did this last week with the rich shepherd who took the sheep of the poor guy. And David says, he ought to be put to death. Here, second time, someone comes to David with a similar story. And David pronounces judgment. But to be honest, I'm not sure what to do with this whole interaction. I really don't know if David made the right decision here. And here's part of my hesitancy. One, Joab's involved. Two, this woman seems very uh, manipulative. Like I noted briefly as I was reading, she continues to perpetuate this deception that the story actually did happen to her after she reveals that really she's just asking for the sake of David to think about his own circumstance. Uh, She, from my perspective, uses language that is, we would say, or the Bible would say, uh, flattering. Look at how she calls David. He's like the angel of God to discern good and evil. What's absent from this story is what? David consulting God in the matter. God, should I bring Absalom back? Where's Nathan the prophet throughout all this is what I want to know. Yes, David was given mercy, but that was because he was repentant. Absalom here is never repentant. We, We never get the idea that he cares. 
about his actions. And something in this interaction with the woman makes David suspicious. He thinks that maybe more is going on here than what she's letting on. And he asks her in verse 18, the king said to the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all the words into the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Woman is laying it on thick here again. You're like the angel of God and knowing all these things, David. You're so smart. And Joab then confronts, excuse me, David then confronts Joab. Verse 21, the king said to Joab, behold now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. We would not call this full reconciliation here, huh? Yeah, Absalom's allowed back into Jerusalem, but David doesn't even go see him. You can't help but wonder if this is because David was still conflicted about the judgment that he cast. Did he really make the right decision in letting Absalom come back without administering true justice. Verses 25 to 28 tell us a little bit more about Aslam. Says he has a nice head of hair, and he has a daughter that he names Tamar, presumably after his own sister. The fact about his head of hair seems random, but it will be significant later. Look at verse 28. As Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence... Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have you set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Jeshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So the king came and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. It turns out that this separation, since Absalom came back to Jerusalem, went on for two years. Pretty awkward to live in the same town as your dad and not see him. And Absalom's trying to figure out how he can get connected to David, and he keeps reaching out to Joab, and Joab's ghosting him. And eventually, Absalom's like, I know how to get Joab's attention. I'll set his field on fire. And we're just kind of getting a glimpse at the kind of guy Absalom is. Setting someone's field on fire, no big deal. I need Joab's attention. And finally, he gets an audience with the king, his own father. It does seem like there is some partial reconciliation but we'll see in chapter 15 that it's only temporary. 
Particularly noteworthy is Absalom's evaluation of himself in verse 32, when he says, if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Seems a little flagrant, a little bold. If I'm, if I'm the guilty one, the king will take care of me. And again, we're just confronted with this dilemma that David is facing here, right? Commentators are careful to connect David's dilemma to his own personal history. How, how can David call his sexually perverse son to judgment when David's sexually perverse? How can David call a murderer to judgment when David's a murderer? What's to keep Absalom from saying, Dad, come on. Didn't you do the same thing? Aren't you a murderer too? Don't throw stones in a glass house. We, we see the dilemma here. Chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man would, with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all the people of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom is very, very crafty here, huh? He stands at the entrance to the city. And as people are coming in to presumably see David about some sort of dispute that they need him to settle, Absalom plays their friend. He's their ally. Wow, you guys make a really good point. I would side with you in this dispute. But unfortunately, there's no one who will ever listen to you. And then he just casually says, but if I were king, you know, I'd listen to you guys. I would hear your cause. I would side with the poor. I would be the people's king. But David, he's not interested in that. And we are seeing the second of the consequences for David's actions. First, that the sword would be in his house. And who remembers the second one? Evil would rise up against you from within your own house. Absalom's doing this. He is stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. It is nothing to Absalom to kill his brother. It is nothing to set someone's field on fire. It's nothing for him to undermine his own dad and take over. Sin has serious consequences. We're not going to read the whole of this chapter. But in verses 7 to 12, Absalom goes to Hebron. And there he anoints himself king. Of Israel. Now, this is a significant selection by Absalom because David, when he was first made king, was also made king in Hebron. So there's that association there. Oh, Absalom's now king in Hebron too. 
Interesting. And in verse 13, upon hearing the news of Absalom's rebellion, this went on for four years, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest you overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house and the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. Upon hearing the news of Absalom's rebellion, David knows almost immediately this is not going to be a peaceful transfer of power. Absalom's not coming to shake my hand and say, your term is over, you know, have a nice vacation, I'm king now. Absalom is coming with an army to overthrow David. And David, as the military strategist, knows the best way to save my life and the life of any followers I have is to vacate the city. Get out of here. And here's the irony of this whole situation. Jerusalem is called the city of David. And here David is running like an exile, a fugitive from his own son, out of his own capital city. Can I remind you, sin has consequences. There are some little details in here which seem insignificant at first, much like the comment about Absalom's hair. We see in verse 16 that the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. We're like, okay, I don't know why I needed to know that per se. That's significant later. We'll see you next week. In the following verses, we have a description of David and the followers, I'll say his entourage, leaving the city, and they encounter a couple of people. Um, in, in fact, the priests actually come to David with the Ark of the Covenant to bring it with them on the way out. Hey, David, you're leaving. Let's bring the Ark with us. David says, no. Um, if God is in this, if God is for me, he'll let me return to the city and see the Ark again. So leave the Ark in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a couple of people that want to, like, join David from the city. Uh, a couple of priests and their sons, and then this guy named Hushai. And David actually sends them back into the city to be, like, double agents for him. It's kind of interesting. It's like out of a spy movie. David's like, actually, you'd be more beneficial to me if you stayed in the city. So you priests, you stay here. Hushai, you stay here. Hushai is actually going to become an advisor to Absalom when Absalom comes into the city. But he's really working on the inside for David. That's significant. And that's how chapter 15 ends. But I trust that the point of Sunday school this morning has been incredibly clear to you. That our sin has serious consequences. All of the suffering that we read about today all of the dissolving of David's family, the sexual perversion, the murder, the overthrowing of David as king is a direct result of his sin with Bathsheba. Now the good news is that God forgave David those sins. 
right? Remember the prophet Nathan tells David, you will not die. David, though you deserve death, you were repentant, your sins are forgiven, you will not die. But the consequences of those sins still exist, huh? Here's the point. If we're in Christ, our sins are forgiven. The forgiveness of our sins means that the greatest consequence or the greatest judgment that awaits us in hell is no longer a threat to us. But forgiven sins still have very real consequences. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. Imagine you were to rob a bank. And on the day of your trial, you go stand before the judge and you say, Hey, judge, great news. I have been declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am righteous in the sight of God. Let me out of here. He's going to say, that's nice. Here's 15 to 20 in prison for robbing a bank. In the same way, we don't let people out of prison because they get saved either. Our sins, though forgiven, still bear consequences. I hope you see that. And last week we considered that we shouldn't sin because it might be, not might be, it is displeasing to the Lord. That should be a motivator. But how about this week, not sinning because it has some serious consequences that are even unknown? I mean, do you think David would have committed the sin with Bathsheba if he had considered all that was to come? The turmoil, the strife, this anger, weeping bitterly, the sorrow that would plague him? My guess is probably not. Parents, can I plead with you to consider how your sin may affect your children? Obviously, sexual sins like David's can destroy a family, leading to divorce. Maybe sexual abuse can destroy a family. It is not worth ruining the lives of your children so that you can indulge yourself in a fleeting passion of your heart. I'll be more specific. Dads, please consider the tone you are setting in your home. We've seen how David's sin just left a trail of destruction in his own kids' lives. Dads, are you leading your families closer to God? Are, are you living and demonstrating and teaching in such a way that your kids want God? Or are you leaving that responsibility to the professionals, to the Sunday school teachers? to myself, to your wife? Or are you modeling godliness in your own home? Because if you neglect that responsibility, you may find that there are some consequences that you did not anticipate. 
do not be surprised that your kids do not show very much interest in the God that you never showed that much interest in. Please, parents, let me plead with you. Your sins have consequences. It's not worth it to ruin your family, destroy the lives of your children in a fleeting moment of pleasure.